This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. You'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a better comedian, author, actor, podcast host, personal hero with better stories about New Jersey, with a bigger love for the weird, and with a bigger heart, I think, for the little guy. Chris is amazing because he gives everyday people a microphone and a spotlight by taking their calls on his podcast uh, and elevating their unheard, unknown stories. Um, He's awesome because he put a bunch of crazy weirdos on public access television and started this show while no one and then everyone was watching. Um, He's the best because he writes, talks, and jokes openly and honestly about mental illness, doubt, and failure in a way that takes enormous courage. Um, But mostly I'm excited about this event because Chris Gethard cares about all of us enough that he wrote a book for us about how we can learn from him. He talks about how he failed and how we can all fail and still go on to do enormous, tremendous, incredible things. Um, Lose Well is the book that lets you know it's okay to jump into a pile of garbage on the most important day of your professional life. Um, it's the book why, will, that will explain why sometimes uh, success means cutting off your pinky finger in a Visine bottling plant, um, or why it's okay to audition for the part of a seven-year-old kid as a grown man. Um, Lose Well is everything you, me, and all the weirdos of the world need to read to feel like it's okay to fail, it's normal to fail, it's good to fail, and we should have fun while we're doing it. So please join me in welcoming Chris Gethard. We're so excited he's here. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was really nice. Um, There has been a mistake. I'm actually here today reading from my other book, Yoga 365, uh, Daily Wisdom for Life on and off the mat. Um, no, I actually just grabbed that from the shelf back there because I'm insecure about doing this. I, these, this is, I will say, this is probably like the 10th one of these I've done in the past couple of weeks, and it's by far the most stressful type of performing I've ever done. I'm going to just be honest with you and say I don't love it making eye contact with you. I'm used to, I've performed, the most people I've ever performed for is 12,000. That was less intimidating than this because um, like, we can all make eye contact and I don't like that. It takes away my sense of power that I've um, earned as a stand-up. I also want to say hi to my cousin Steve. He's here. He's mentioned in this book. Um, you should get him to sign the book, too, <laughs> after this uh, reading. So the way that's going to work is I, I'm supposed to read from the book, and then uh, we can do a Q&A, and uh, you can ask about the book or anything else if you want to ask about other stuff in general, like about me or my career or just life in general. I don't. It's fine. And I tend to have a meltdown about halfway through, and I apologize a lot, and then I'll sign your book if you bought it. And if you didn't, that's okay. Don't worry about it. That's fine, too. But yeah, that was super nice. Such a nice intro that kind of summed up the book more eloquently than I've been able to. Um, So thank you for that. And I do, I just believe in failure, and I like it, and... uh, I, I feel like you got to keep finding it and craving it. Like some people might say at this stage of my career, taking an Amtrak five hours to perform for a room that's half full uh, in, uh, on a wharf in the rain. As soon as I got off the train and realized how cold and rainy it was, I was like, nobody's hanging out at a wharf tonight. That's going to be an impediment. And I'm getting back on an Amtrak tonight, five more hours. Some might say, hey, you're past that, man. I would say, fuck that. Let's do it. That's the type of stuff I love. 
And I really do mean that. I really do mean that. Like, this is a dream. And thank you guys for coming out. It means a lot. So I'm going to read from some of the book. The book is split up into a whole bunch of different stuff. Like, there's a whole bunch of chapters that are uh, aimed at just kind of being outright funny that go light on the lessons. Then there's some stuff that's very sort of philosophy-driven. And uh, then there's a bunch of stuff that kind of jumps back and forth. And... Uh, um, I hope you guys like it if you check it out. I'm going to read a chapter that's from the early half of the book, um, you know, because a lot of it, uh, you know, I, I think I, I really made an effort to make sure it's not just for creative people or people who want to do comedy, God forbid. And uh, uh, but but a lot of it, obviously, since it is from my career, kind of recounts some stuff and what I've taken away from that. And this is actually the story of the first time I ever got on stage, um, which I think kind of kicks that off. So this is one of the more story driven ones. And uh, I've learned at these bookstores that some people actually like to read along, which I've always been shocked by. If you do, I'm starting on page 47. <laughs> I, want, I did one of these, I think, in uh, Boston, and a, a girl actually stopped me in a panic and was like, what page, what page? And I was, it freaked me out so bad. <laughs> okay, all right. Let's, okay, we'll do this. So this is a chapter called Bye Bye Birdie, page 47. Okay, all right. How do you know when a dream is worth the sacrifice? In my experience, it's when it shows up in your life and leaves you with no choice but to pursue it. From a young age, I knew that I wanted to make people laugh. When I was seven years old, I'd climb onto the coffee table and impersonate comedians I saw on TV to make my mom giggle. I don't put it in the book. I actually specifically used to impersonate uh, the opening credits to the Cosby show, that dance he did. But I called the editor up last minute. I was like... <laughs> We gotta stop the presses on that one. <laughs> Nobody wants to deal with that right now. Okay, making my brother laugh felt like a major accomplishment, still does. I was never good at sports, the most confident in life, or particularly great at anything, but when I could make other kids laugh, I always felt strong and safe. Still, I didn't know that was a thing one could really do. So for many years, it wasn't a dream of mine. It remained dormant, asleep somewhere inside me, waiting for the right moment to strike. And when it did, it arrived amid chaos. I never expected it and barely even asked for it. I didn't sit down with a pen and pad and brainstorm until I came up with a dream. Instead, foundation shifted and crumbled, and there it was. When I was in eighth grade, being part of a three-way telephone call was a big deal. Just having phone conversations with kids from school was a big step, even though nothing of particular consequence ever went down. An eighth grader on the phone with another eighth grader, it's mostly statements like, we are talking on the phone right now. It's not like we had much to say to each other. Conversations mostly focused on gossip and idle chit-chat and a sense of awe at something as ordinary as a phone call. Mike and Maria both lived up the hill. I was a down-the-hill kid. We'd become friendly, but the physical separation of our neighborhoods prevented us from becoming actual pals. Each day we'd hang out at school, then they'd take a bus home to their side of town, and I'd remain on mine. The three of us started talking on the phone at night, which was the big time. A three-way call with a guy and a girl was pretty much unheard of in the West Orange of my youth. During one conversation, Mike said, you should join the school play. I said, I don't want to be in the school play. Maria said, why not? Because I don't want to wear a costume and sing and dance around in front of people. Neither do we, Mike said, but it's an excuse to stick around after school. We'll get to hang out more, and we can sneak out of rehearsals and, and go get food and stuff. 
The play that year was Bye Bye Birdie, a musical. The one-sentence description of the show is, a guy named Conrad Birdie, who is, for all intents and purposes, Elvis, shows up in some small town, and underage girls hope he commits a crime by sleeping with them, (laughs) set to song. I wasn't thrilled to sing and dance. I was there for the social side of things. So being in the chorus fit me A-OK. I figured I'd get to putz around with my pals, crack jokes in the back, and otherwise not much be involved in this dumb play. The chorus was simple, easy. You just stand around with dozens of other kids and pretend to sing. Let the enthusiastic kids actually belt out the notes and let the poor saps who landed the lead roles worry about how it's really going. Then an unexpected thing happened. I got one of those lead roles and became one of those saps. To be in the play, all you had to do was get up next to the piano and sing in front of people as a formality. When I belted out my ditty, the director seemed a little surprised at my singing ability. To everyone's shock, including my own, I was able to carry a tune at an audible level, which was more than most of my junior high compatriots could offer. When the parts were announced, I was cast as Randolph, the little brother of the family at the core of the show. It was about as small an actual part as one could get, but it was a part, and I got it. It was intimidating, but secretly I was thrilled. When I got home from school, I told my mom, Wait, what? She was as confused as I was. Yeah, I I don't know either, I said. Well, I'm proud of you, she answered. I hadn't anticipated that. Her enthusiasm got my gears turning. Turns out, I thought, that if you try at things, you can get recognized and praised for it, huh? Mike and Maria stuck to the course, but I took my role seriously. It made sense that I was playing the little brother. I was in eighth grade, but most people thought I was still in fourth. Late Bloomer does not begin to describe where I was at. Everyone was starting to grow, get acne, wispy dirtbag mustaches, and all the things you're supposed to get in eighth grade. But I was staying still. Getting the part of Randolph was the first time my prepubescent look was ever an asset. Determined to make this work, I memorized my part within two days. I knew every line backward and forward. I then memorized the lines that came immediately before and after mine because I didn't want to miss a cue knowing every line preceding mine was key. And because I wanted to set up the next preteen thespian to really nail the necessary emotion, knowing the line after mine also seemed like a good idea. Then I figured, you know what? I might as well memorize in their entirety all the scenes I'm in. That way I can track the intention of the whole thing start to finish, make sure I'm a really well-oiled cog in this machine. Got that down within a few weeks. This was furious memorization. Anytime I messed up, I was mad at myself for throwing off the rhythm. But I also knew anytime another actor messed up, even the most in the most innocuous ways. You said I instead of we, I'd think to myself, just little blips on the radar. I wouldn't get huffy or judge other people for this. Not everyone is putting in the time I am, I'd think. Not everyone is as dedicated to the craft of acting as me. Or, if I thought they were talented, I'd cut them slack. Maybe they're shaking things up, keeping it fresh for themselves. Should I try that? Nah, I think I'll stick to nailing this shit. (laughs) When I'd memorized every scene I was in, there were only a few, I figured, you know what? I really want to hit the ground running with my scenes. I should memorize all the scenes that happen right before scenes I'm in, even though I'm not in those scenes. That took another week of studying the script. When I had those scenes down, I thought, if I really want to nail this part, a little brother who participates in roughly two songs, I should just bite the bullet and memorize this entire play. So I did. I knew every single line of the whole damn thing. 
all the dialogue, the lyrics to every song, even every single stage direction. I had never worked this hard at anything in my life. I was always a smart kid, got reasonably good grades, but I expended most of my mental energy on memorizing obscure facts about Marvel comic book characters, R.I.P. Stan Lee. Forgot that line was in there. Gotta be honest, stings a little bit. Or the lineage of different professional wrestling championship belts. This was the first thing I poured myself into without reservation that was even remotely connected to school. Other kids in the show quickly figured out that I knew every line. Someone would forget their words and the director would flip through his script looking for the right line. Before he could find the page, I had already said it. I wasn't trying to show off. I, I was trying to help. People in scenes would forget lines and look at me. I'd whisper it and help them out before anyone noticed. Admittedly, this was a bit psychopathic and reflective of some OCD issues that would spring up later in life. But it was also pretty useful. Conrad Birdie was played by Danny Tobia, the coolest kid in school. Same kid who, I make a reference to an early part of the book here, I'll skip it for now. It just comes off weird every time. Danny had a mystique that no preteen should be able to attain. He'd always had it. In fourth grade, we heard that this kid Danny was moving across town and would become in our classroom. Legend held that he was cool as shit. At that age, Crosstown rumors about children's personalities don't erupt too often. We awaited his arrival with bated breath. And when he showed up, the rumors were true. This kid had swagger. He was nine. But when he walked into a room, he took alpha male status. Teachers would shut up when he spoke. In the halls, in between classes, older kids got out of his way. Even the principal seemed intimidated by him. The kid knew how to run shit. There was no one else in our school who could dream of playing Conrad Birdie. My guess is that before they even picked the show, the director must have gone to Danny Tobia for a sit-down. Mr. Gitter, how can I help you today? Danny, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a very busy man. Come now, Mr. Gitter. Please, uh, Danny, call me Jay. Jay, a man of your skills and abilities, someone who gives back to the community as much as yourself, I always make time for such people. Danny, that means the world. I come to you with a request that would mean so much to this town. I want to put on a play. A play? A show. A musical. I want to make the whole town of West Orange, New Jersey sing. I want people to feel good about themselves, to get lost in the music, to have one night, one stinking night where they can forget all their problems. And how can I be of service, Danny? Would you do me the great honor of playing Conrad Birdie? He's the embodiment of cool, and only you can possibly pull this off. Normally, I like to stay out of the spotlight, but for you, Jay, I'll make an exception. Danny Tobia was Conrad Birdie. Before we even knew about this play, his life had mirrored it. Rumors of a cool kid showing up, people fawning over him when he finally got there. He didn't even have to act. He just had to reenact the actual path he'd blazed back in fourth grade. He was great on stage, too. He'd walk into the spotlight, mumble his lines, and the girls would flip out. Not because it was scripted that they had to, but because that's the effect he had on his female classmates. He was effortless. He was the show. And then out of nowhere... He quit. My hunch is that as we got closer to showtime, it was dawning on Danny more and more that he actually had to stand up in front of the entire town and do this. And Mr. Gitter started giving Danny notes. Danny did not like getting notes. There was not any aspect of Danny's world in which he was used to being critiqued in front of his peers, certainly not by the likes of Mr. Gitter. And one day he'd had enough. 
Mr. Gitter was snipping at him about some missed choreography, and Danny just mumbled, you know what? Fuck this. The room went silent. Excuse me? Mr. Gitter asked. I don't want to do this, Danny said. Then he turned around and walked out of the auditorium. Mr. Gitter watched him go, then stomped back into his office. Girls cried. No one was sure what to do. Later that night, on our three-way call, Mike, Maria, and I agreed this was some of the juiciest drama of our young lives. The play was only a few weeks out, so we had no idea if the show was still on. I was one of the first at practice the next day because right out of the gate, I had latched onto the old acting adage of early's on time, on time is late, late is unacceptable. When I walked in, a few of the lead actors were pleading with Mr. Gitter, who sat on the edge of the stage looking frazzled and grumpy. There he is, my friend Christie said. Try it. I swear it's true. What's going on? I asked. Christie is claiming that you have the entire show memorized. I thought I was being scolded. Uh, she's saying it's not just your part. She's saying you have every role memorized. She's saying you have Conrad Birdie memorized. I glanced at Christy. Why was she trying to get me in trouble? She's saying you could play Conrad Birdie, that maybe, just maybe, we won't have to cancel this show. Is that true? Did not compute still, but I, I told the truth. I, uh, I haven't memorized. He opened the script to a random page and, and spat out a line. I didn't hesitate. I spat out Conrad's response. Another random line. I nailed that one too. His eyebrow raised. He walked to the piano and without a word started playing honestly sincere. Without missing a beat, I sang on time and in key and nailed every word. You gotta be kidding me, Mr. Gitter said. And just like that, I was Conrad Birdie. I was as far away from Conrad Birdie as a kid could be. But all of a sudden, I was the embodiment of cool. I was Conrad Birdie. After rehearsal, Mr. Gitter pulled me aside, looking me dead in the eye. He told me, you're not cool. Not cool at all. It's not the most appropriate thing to say to a kid. But Conrad Birdie is cool, he continued. So even though you're not cool, your character is cool. Be an actor, goddammit. You gotta be cool. I did my best to get cool, but there's no way around the way I looked. I had doe eyes and soft cheeks and a high-pitched voice. I was inches shorter than the next kid and a clear foot shorter than a lot of the girls who were fawning over me on stage. Didn't help that I had a severe bowl haircut. I had the vibe of like a young Katie Lang if she wore her hair down and had much softer features. <laughs> Worked my ass off at this new part. I could feel the other kids in the cast shifting from terror that my recasting would be a horrible disaster to respect the way I was going after it. One day, about a week after I was handed my new role, rehearsal started late because Mr. Gitter was in his office talking with Danny Tobia. Cooler heads had prevailed. Much like the mafia impresarios he so closely resembled, Danny took a breath and realized commitments should be honored and that your word was your bond. He offered to come back to the show. It made total sense, and I was ready to put on my coonskin cap to play Randolph again. But Mr. Gitter decided he was the only diva allowed in this production, told Danny he could sit out. It was shocking. The lunchroom gossip was a buzz. I had actually been chosen over Danny. It's not about you. Danny told me in science class, it's me versus Gitter. His day of reckoning will come. In the meantime, make me proud. You go out and get him. I had the blessing of the Don. But with less than three weeks of rehearsal left to go, I was under a lot of stress. 
I did have one thing going for me, two insane costumes, a glittery gold jacket and pants combo, John Lennon-style sunglasses, which my blonde bangs hung over, and rounding out the strange garb, a scarf. There's a little Liberace, a little 1950s vision of a space-age future, and then the killer. My best friend Anthony's mom went above and beyond. She was the first supporter of my artistic dreams. She got behind this Conrad Birdie thing hard, and lucky for me, she was crafty. Go buy a white denim jacket, she told me. Make sure it fits snug. I'll do the rest. I did as I was told. I dropped off a plain white jacket at her house. It was simple, no frills. This jacket, it turned out, was a caterpillar. And at the end of the week, Anthony's mom gave me back a butterfly, a power jacket with giant red lips bedazzled on the back below the embroidered words, Conrad Birdie. In the early 90s, few tools were as powerful as a bedazzler. I may not have felt like Conrad Birdie, but my outfits certainly did. Opening night came, people freaked out. Kids who had dreams of acting experienced stage fright for the first time. As the prospect of public humiliation set in, girls were crying. Guys who were normally full of wisecracks and bravado silently slinked around with eyes full of fear. The adults were hardly better. Random parents who volunteered to help with makeup shouted across the room at no one in particular. Mr. Gitter walked past me and threw a script in the air for no reason. Everybody was tight and on edge. But strangely, I was calm. I was an anxious kid my whole life, but for some reason, I could not have felt more laid back. I was about to walk onto a stage in front of a couple hundred kids I went to school with, as well as their siblings and their parents, all while wearing a shiny gold outfit made of some kind of stretchy material. And this outfit was bad. If Freddie Mercury was like, hey, uh, David Bowie, I'm going to come up with something even you'll be embarrassed walking around in. This would have been it. But I was good to go. My entrance was hyped up by every character in the early half of the show. Everything in the first act leads up to the entrance of Conrad Birdie, the coolest motherfucker anyone has ever seen. Scene after scene, it's people preparing for Conrad, waxing poetic about the coolness of Conrad, bracing themselves for Conrad. The moment of the big entrance arrived, the curtain opened, and I walked out. At first, there was stunned silence, and then a handful of the crowd giggled, laughter, not cheers, not being impressed by how cool Conrad Birdie was. The giggles spread, then turned into belly laughs, gut ones, instinctive ones. People doubled over. I mean, genuine laughs. To this day, some of the hardest I have ever caused. <laughs> For 40 minutes, all the audience heard were people talking about the coolest person on planet Earth arriving. And when the moment came, a prepubescent boy who looked vaguely like a 90s-era lesbian songwriter strode onto the stage. I didn't blink. I loved it. I get it, I thought. I get why this is funny. Instincts I didn't know I had kicked to life. It's like an equation. A guy who looks like me is not supposed to get this reaction from girls. The more I can just be like me, the more the crowd will laugh. I can work with this. I, I can make this get bigger. I have them, I thought. I have them right where I want them. I milked it hard. I'm not saying I put in some tour de force performance. I was an eighth grader on stage for the first time, but I loved going out there. Any line where I had to hit on a girl got roars. My songs were met with cheers. Crowds at middle school shows, they're prone to support and enthusiasm, so they're always going to be nice. But I felt the emotions of the crowd. They were enjoying me. They were rooting for me. Something unique was happening. Every time I stepped off stage, I wanted back out there. I'd turn and watch the scenes I wasn't in, swaying back and forth, hopping on the balls of my feet like a boxer, waiting for the fight to start. 
when my cue came, I had to restrain myself from sprinting back out on stage. All I wanted was to make people laugh again. It came from my guts, an animal impulse. I wanted more. I'd spent a whole life praying people wouldn't laugh at me. Now I wanted a room full of kids, parents, teachers, anyone who passed by in the hallway and happened to glimpse into that beat-up auditorium. I wanted them all to laugh at me. When the show was over, we bowed and the curtains closed. There was panic. Kids ran up to each other and hugged, cried, consoled each other over mess-ups. Adults barked commands at the stage crew. Musicians sprinted around with music stands. It was mayhem. And I was in the middle of it. The chaos felt like a warm blanket. A bubble of space formed around me. It was strange and felt supernatural. To this day, I have no idea why, but I was in the center of the stage, and despite the crazy amount of activity surrounding me, no one came within 10 feet of me in any direction. It was like a force field protected me, and in that 10 feet, I spun and then jumped and then spun some more, thinking to myself, this is it. This is it. This is it. This is it. A show had fallen apart. I tumbled downhill as it did, somehow wound up being at the core of it. Chaos shook this whole thing down like an earthquake, and when it was over, I was smart enough to see my path sitting there in front of me and was brave enough to go for it. I never found my dream. It found me. What I'm telling you is that you will know it's time to dedicate a significant portion of your time, energy, and focus to a project when you can't escape it. When you experience something that leads to inspiration and motivation, you'll likely find that the, the motivation doesn't leave you. Like a cloud, it sits and hangs there, hovering over you. Dreams can fester and grow into unexercised demons. If you can let them go, let them go. There is absolutely no need to live your life chasing something you don't feel bound to. But when a dream sits and grows and doesn't go away, that's the one you must attack and figure out. These are the dreams that you feel in such true fashion that it's worth failing hard to find out if something's actually there. At the end of the day, your dream will find you as much as you'll find it. When you and your dream finally link up, be like Conrad Birdie, honestly sincere. Make them feel it too. And that's the chapter from my book, everybody. So that's the most awkward part for me. Thank you so much. That's awful nice here. And I'm so sorry about all of this again, this whole thing. Uh, but now is the Q&A part. So if anybody has questions, it can be about, oh, my voice is cracking. You all heard it. Um, there's a mic. If anybody has questions about anything, book or otherwise, I'm down. Hi. Thank you so much for Hi. coming. <laughs> thank you for coming. Oh, um, it's a pleasure. I do improv here in oh, DC. Oh, that's awesome. At WIT? I do. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. Um, so I know that I have struggled in, um, learning and performing improv with embracing failure and I teach now and my students continue to do that as well. And aside from just saying, just go out there and fail and it's fine. What do you, what do you tell your students? What do you tell yourself in, in, in regards to embracing failure? Well, I'll tell you a funny thing, and this is not me trying to shill the book too hard, but when it came, the, the, I, I was approached to, so when I did, I did a show called Career Suicide and Harper One approached me and said they wanted to do a book version of it. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be the suicide guy anymore. I got to move on with my life. But they were like, well, we really like you. Do you have anything else? And, and they, we wound up coming up with this idea. And for the, the, the self-help sort of philosophical parts, that was really hard for me because that's not my wheelhouse. But I can tell you so much that so much of that stuff in this book is just the bastardized lesson plans from my improv classes. Like, 
I, I, it's very nice. Some, I haven't taught improv in years, and I had a very good reputation in New York for a while, and sometimes people are come teach again, but I'm telling you, I can tell you the chapters that are just shit I used to say in improv class if you want. Like, why this, why here, why now? As soon as you, as an improv teacher, you know when you hear that title, it's like, that is an improv thing right there. Uh, when should I quit? Stop apologizing. Never let them see the scales. No need for rock bottom. Those are all things that come straight from my... Uh, Improv classes, the unusual things you probably know is the literal methodology of the UCB theater, find the unusual thing. Funny plus is a really, really big one I used to say in my upper level classes. So those are all things that are in here in a big way that it's just, I was like, man, um, what do I have to say when it comes to sort of philosophical stuff, especially uh, pertaining to creativity? And I went to that well a lot. Um, as far as the embracing failure side of it specifically, outside of just plugging specific chapters in this book, um, I think the main thing that I always like to say in improv classes and really challenge people with is to remind them that it is an extremely young art form and that the building blocks of it were laid out during the Great Depression. Viola Spohn started those theater games as part of a WPA program, and that became... Playwrights Theater, and then The Compass, then Second City, right? And then that was really blew up in the 50s. And then Dell didn't really start long form until the 80s. And when you think about it, it's an art form that, the art form that most of us are practicing these days is 30 years old, and that's insane. And I always tell people, when you think of, uh, like when you think of rock and roll, like 30 years in, what? They were like, had just discovered punk rock and new wave and all these things hadn't happened yet that have happened now. So that's one of the big things I encourage people on is like get so caught up in trying to do things right or match the things you've seen or to start dodging bad notes. And a lot of times that locks you in, in a place where you're not really pushing anything or getting good notes. And if you don't take some of those chances that might fail big, you also won't be the one that discovers that next thing. Like, how can you ever possibly get that? And, and a lot of that is in that chapter I mentioned called Funny Plus on page 211. I'm looking at the table of contents. But that's my big thing is like always trying to rally. I think I, at the end of the day, I think the reason people liked me as an improv teacher wasn't because I was particularly good at teaching them improv, but I was really good at getting people to not give a fuck about how it went. And uh, a lot of that was in the spirit of like, be the person that discovers the next cool shit. Like if you get real nerdy about improv, like we know the group that came up with the tag out. That's the thing we all do. Like we know the people who did that. Like there's times where things didn't exist and now they do and you wanna be the person to discover the next one. So get over it, fail big, and know that if you're willing to fail big, you might also succeed really big and blow people's minds. So that's kind of what I would say in improv classes. And then, you know, kids who graduated from liberal arts colleges would pay $350 for what you guys just heard for free. So kids, a lot of people with these glasses would be like, <laughs> so I hope that answers your question. And I was doing that good luck at Thank you. Yes, good, good, good. And that's a great theater. A lot of good people have come out of there. Are there any other questions? As you can see, I am bad at eye contact and I ramble a lot. We can keep it going, whatever you want. Oh, this is awkward. <laughs> Do I have any plans to go back to TV? Well, that's not always up to me, you know? <laughs> that's not generally one that I decide. Uh, I've been thinking long and hard about it. I actually, when, when, when we were uh, in the midst of our final season on True TV, 
it was getting really tense as I think people maybe, if you're a fan of the show, I think people started to pick up on that. Like my aunt, my cousin's mom, my aunt Karen sent me an email. I don't know if you know this. She sent me an email halfway through the season. And part of why I knew it was time to end the show, my aunt Karen, who's like a really great person and who really, I know genuinely loves me and has like nothing but good intentions, sent me an email one morning after the morning after the show. and was like, I watched the show last night. It was really funny. I hope you're getting enough sleep. And I was just like, I gotta hang it up, man. Like, people who love me are seeing through the TV that I am fucking tired of this and exhausted. And uh, the network executives were coming at us and it was bad. And I just didn't wanna fight anymore. Like, it was at a point where, you know, it, cause it was an idea I had when I was 27, when I first started working on it. And we kept doing it for nine years and it was still so much fun. And then they'd start yelling at us and I'd be like, I'm, every time they'd start yelling at us, I'd be like, I'm 38 years old, man. Like, why are people yelling, telling me the best? Like, why am I getting in a big debate about the funniest way to get thrown in a dunk tank? This is stupid. Like, why am I letting someone else tell me the I've been doing comedy 18 years and someone's like, if you're going to lock yourself in a cage and have human hair fall on you, you have to do it this way. And I'm just like, this is so dumb. This is so dumb. And one of the development executives who I actually was very close with, I knew her before, she actually did stuff at UCB back in the day. She pulled me aside and was like, I'm sorry, it's getting so tense. And she said, I think this is just the nature of how television works sometimes. And uh, I was like, yeah, I know. I think that, I don't, I think that might be why I, I don't want to do TV anymore after this. I think I might be done. And she got really hurt by that. I didn't realize that was going to hurt her feelings. And she was like, I, that's so, like, we're, we're ruining the whole medium of, te like, your whole dream. We're ruining, and I was like, well, you know, I do the podcast and it's, it's gone very well and we have advertisers and not to get weird about money, but it like pays my mortgage and I'm comfortable. And then, you know, the fans of that and the fans of the TV show are so nice that when I go out on the road and do stand up, they buy tickets. Like I kind of have two other full-time jobs where no one ever yells at me. Like no one gives me a note. I was like, this is my third job. You have to understand that. And you guys yell at me every day. We, you get, we had a notes call about one episode that lasted five and a half hours. The episode is one hour long. How do you have notes that are five and a half times the length of the episode itself? Like, and she was just like, yeah, I get that. So I don't know if I go back. The one thing I keep thinking about is there's a lot of comedians who are younger than me, who started after me, who are maybe equally weird. And at this point in their careers, maybe even actually... I've kind of normalized. I just do a lot of stand-up where I tell stories now. Like, I'm not as much of a performance art type. But there's a part of me that feels like I want to sort of get more into producing and try to help them out because they're doing cool stuff. And that there's also a part of me that's like, if these, these development executives spent three years yelling at me, and I honestly think they were wrong 98% of the time, so maybe I can get into a job that sort of uh, undercuts them and does their job better than they did it. Because that's sort of the chip on my shoulder now is... So I don't know. There's a part of me that has the fantasy of uh, going back to public access, but that's like, if it went well, it would be the coolest thing ever, and if it went poorly, it would be the saddest thing anyone's ever seen. So I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So yeah, that's that. Anybody else? Thoughts, concerns, questions? It's really nice you guys came to the wharf tonight. Hi, yes, you had a question. Opening for Jeff Rosenstein. Oh, yeah. That was Antarctica Vespucci, right? Yes, yes, yes. 
That's a really great question. So you saw me opening Shea Stadium. It was not the Mets' former home. I've never performed in a venue that large. Shea Stadium was like a DIY punk venue in Bushwick that uh, got shut down a couple years ago. It was very sad. Very, very great place. And uh, my friend Jeff Rosenstock, who played the Gethard Show, and we became really tight kindred spirits, asked me to open for, for one of his bands there. And I can say so genuinely that as a stand-up, in my opinion, um, opening for music is the hardest gigs uh, I've run into. It's my, my least favorite type of gig to do. But in the spirit of this book, anytime I'm offered it, I generally say, yeah, because it's so hard. Because you got to realize people are like, you know, they've probably heard like two other bands that no matter how good they are, they're playing through amps. It's a barrage of sound. Everyone who goes to shows knows usually in between bands, what do you do? You start talking to your friends, you start drinking, and that's what you're conditioned for. And then some guy walks out and it's like, so now here, here's what it was like growing up in New Jersey. <laughs> and it's like no one really ever announces what, like the musicians don't really know, like, hey, it would be really great if someone introed me. So they knew a new thing was starting. And you have to fight through all that sound and all that drinking. Some of my biggest uh, war stories as a stand-up come from opening for bands. Jeff's audience knows me, I think, because a lot of them knew the Gethard show, and he was very good about kind of shouting about us to the hilltops, and he had an appearance there that there was an episode that became infamous because the crowd took over the show and just chanted the phrase, eat more butts for 20 minutes, and wouldn't let me talk, and Jeff was on that episode. So they all knew me. That one was easy. Probably one of the worst experiences of my performing life was I actually opened for the Bouncing Souls, if you know them, and that's a really big act. This was at the Music Hall of Williamsburg, which I think is over a 1,000-seat venue, maybe closer to 1,500 or, or 2,000. I'm not certain, and I don't want to exaggerate. But I went out, and uh, they did not... No, they did not like me at all. And it was a night of like Jersey artists. It was um, Bouncing Souls, one of the guys from Gaslight, Gaslight Anthem, and me were like the three big things. So if I ever, if I like told stories about Jersey, they'd quiet down until I was done. And I mean, people were honestly just heckling the shit out of me. It, by the third, I was hosting. So by the third time I went out, they literally did like people went like this and just went back to conversations. I also once did the Bell House on a bill that. Uh, tight, it was a benefit for a hurricane Tom Sharpling organized. Or no, it was the w, WFMU organizing. If you know WFMU Radio, if you've ever heard of it, this is a freeform station in Jersey. They are like gentle, nerdy record collectors. Like the people who are fans of WFMU Radio make me look like the most confident man in the world. They are like vinyl nerds. And I, I was in between Titus Andronicus and John Spencer Blues Explosion. And I, and I went out and I will never forget, they rebelled, like all these weird FMU people. And I'm like known in that community through Tom. I'm telling you, this dude stood at the edge of the stage and he wanted John Spencer Blues Explosion to come out so bad that every time I started a joke, he would just go, play fucking music. Play some fucking music. And I was just like, this sucks. So it's the hardest type of gig in the world. But, you know, uh, again, like I say in the book, it's like one of those things that when I'm presented in those scenarios, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then when it goes well, I'm like, I am a golden god, you know? So <laughs> I like it, but it's really hard. It's the hardest type of stand-up there is. I don't know if we got anything else. Hi, yes, in the back. So I guess my question is, like, oh, you had so many cool bands on the Chris Gethard show. How anything we should be, like, looking into now or, like, as far as cool bands? Or as, like, what's on your playlist? What's on my... Uh, well, sadly, since the show is dead, I'm a little out of touch because that was kind of... You know, I, I, I really did bury myself in the show over the years and didn't get to go out as much. And I'm extremely tired. Um, so I... Uh, 
I don't know as much as I used to, and the show used to bring the bands to me, which was really nice. I will say I really like that Swearin put out a new album. I was a big fan of theirs, and uh, I love that they put out a new one. I think all the stuff that Allison Crutchfield's done over the past couple of years is really good. And uh, I actually had tweeted back in like 2013. I once tweeted, like, I will not end the Gethard show till Swearin plays the song Here to Hear on our show. And they broke up, and then they got back together while we were still going. And I messaged Allison, and we were trying to make them the last musical guest, but the touring, their touring schedule didn't work out. I was like, but it was another sign of like, yep, we might be, we might be stretching this one too thin. If a band can break up and have enough years go by that people are like, holy shit, they reunited? I never thought that would happen. And we're still just doing it. Yeah, maybe we've been on the air too long. Uh, that's one that comes to mind. I also like Cayetana and Charlie Bliss and... Uh, those are the ones that are coming to mind right now. I know my dear friend Shell Shagger recording a new album right now. They do the intro song to Beautiful Anonymous. I'm always excited to see what they do. So I don't know, but I'm off the radar compared to a couple years ago. Anybody else? Hi, yes, thank you so much for coming. Um, I was just interested in hearing more about your experience with Beautiful Anonymous and maybe what you've learned or if there's anything that surprised you or how it's turned out compared to maybe what you envisioned in your head when you came up with it a couple of years ago. It's been like the best surprise in my life. I feel so lucky. It's become a community that has uh, helped me keep my head above water a number of times, like especially as the TV show was uh, really getting strained and getting difficult. I'd get to leave once a week and just go to talk to somebody on the phone and they were universally nice people. And like I said, it's funny. I just did a, when I was doing touring to support the book, we kicked it off in Brooklyn at the Bell House and my wife came with me and I was signing books afterwards. And it was the first time that she's like seen me at the signing table since Beautiful Anonymous has become a thing. And we were driving home and she was like, Beautiful Anonymous fans are the most kind, beautiful people I've ever been around. And I'm like, I know, I got so lucky, so lucky. It's way different. I thought, so when we switched to cable with the Gethard Show, it was originally, they switched us from an hour with no commercials to a half hour, which really means 22 minutes. So that, that was hard. So I knew that phone calls were gonna have to be quick, 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 and everything was gonna have to be like sort of gamified. And public access, if there was a call that we wanted to go 10, 11 minutes, we could do that because who cares? It's public access. If it doesn't go well, it's public access, you know? It's, uh, it's nuts. The whole medium is nuts. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to miss that so much. So I figured it would be Gethard Show fans calling and kind of messing with me and being weirdos. And um, the first episode just was different. That was a Gethard Show fan, it turned out. Ron Paul's baby. I've uh, met him since. It turned out he was a Gethard Show fan, but it just went in a more serious direction. And then that was the one Ira Glass put on This American Life. And then my whole life changed. But because that was the one that was featured, it also became this weirdly, like, very dark show at times. So I did not expect that at all. Um, but I feel very, very lucky. If there's one thing you, one of the things you said is if, if there's one thing I've learned, and this is sort of sad, and, but it's also, it's kind of beautiful, but also kind of sad is that, you know, a, a lot of people, especially when the show first kind of blew up, People would say like, oh, this format is so, like there were people, oh, this format's really refreshing. And some people that were like, oh, what an innovative concept. And I will say that actually broke my heart because I was like, the idea of talking to another human being for an hour straight shouldn't feel innovative. It's weird. It's a weird reflection of where we're at that it does, that we rely so much on like text messaging and emails and Facebook messaging and WhatsApp. Like 
I think that's weird. It shouldn't feel innovative to talk to another human being. Um, so that I remember was a real eye-opening thing. And it's actually been very, very good for my mental health as well to realize, oh, the idea that I, I feel like the th reason people maybe like it is the idea of like, yeah, you could be on the show someday. And the whole premise is someone's actually going to slow down and listen to you. And that to me is like a very um, inspiring thing. And uh, selfishly, it's very good for me because generally when I'm on the phone with people, they'll be like, how are you doing? And it's like a group of people out there in the world who actually give a shit about the answer. So that's been very eye-opening and, and positive and beautiful for me as well. I'm so lucky to do it. I'm thinking about quitting TV and just doing, my contract is up next year and I'm hoping I get another one. And I kind of want to tell Earwolf, like if you give me a five-year contract or a 10-year contract, I think I'll just do this and not do anything else. Because the other shit, I've proven whatever I have to prove and it's too hard. I don't want people who have never done comedy to tell me how comedy works ever again in my life. So I would love to just do this. So we'll see. We'll see what Earwolf does, but it's kind of up to them. I think that's an amazing place to end it. Oh, um, wow. Actually, we're right on time. So can we get one more round of applause? For oh, Chris? thank you. <laughs> you don't have to do that. That's nice. So remember, everybody, Yoga 365, Delhi Wisdom for Life and on the mat. Like, observe your breath. The mist of Shiva's blue throat. That one I really poured in my... That was also inspired by someone I went to high school with. Anyway, okay. Thank you guys so much. I'll see you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.